Hey folks, coming at you from a basement in the suburbs somewhere on the outskirts of Baltimore City. This is FYIZ, which is kind of like the first episode of a new show and kind of like a relaunch of an old show. And anyway, I'm your host, John, and I've got some very ominous backing music right now because it's a very serious time. I got to be serious about this. You folks need to know what's going on. Now, for the longest time, FYIZ has been a single podcast feed with multiple shows on it, and it was a fun experiment that allowed me to try different ideas and formats. So you've been listening to shows like Playing Records with John and Soul Searching and Scared a Real Horror Show, but you've been doing it all on the FYIZ feed. And going forward, you'll still be getting the same basic stuff. I'll still be talking to authors and musicians and fellow pop culture obsessives and maybe dropping the occasional comedy thing in there, except now it will all be happening under the name FYIZ. But I stress, same quality of guest. And to that end... I could not be more excited about the person I have on the show today. Uh, Jeff Vandermeer is a writer who defies categorization. He touches on multiple genres, often in the same story, with elements of horror, satire, sci-fi, fantasy, um, and good old-fashioned human drama, as well as the drama experienced by non-humans. Jeff has said that a big part of his creative process is trusting and rewarding his subconscious. He pays attention to his dreams and he writes down every idea to see if it's any good later. And you can tell because his books are always rich with concepts and specifics that could be whole other books. And sometimes if you wait long enough, they will become whole other books. So I'm suggesting you should read everything you can get your hands on by Jeff. But for the purposes of this chat, we talk about the novel Born and its kind of sequel, Dead Astronauts. We talk about Hummingbird Salamander a little bit. We talk about uh, City of Saints and Mad Men, the first book in his amazing Ambergris trilogy. And we talk about Bliss, a novella that came out late last year in a limited edition from Subterranean Press. And in all of those cases, uh, don't be afraid to listen if you haven't read yet, because we, we keep the spoilers pretty light. One quick note. Um, in this conversation, Jeff makes reference to a nonfiction piece he was writing for a really cool publication that was possibly going to make a big splash. And at the time, he couldn't reveal what it was. But I think now, at the time I'm releasing this podcast, it's obvious that it's the piece he wrote about uh, uh, Ron DeSantis for Esquire. And um, it seems like it's an epic takedown. And I think that sounds wonderful. So I'm going to go read that. You, however, should listen to my conversation with Jeff Vandermeer. Well, hello, Jeff Vandermeer. Hi. And thank you for being on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Now, just right off the top of my head, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about your day. I know that a lot of writers write in the morning and early in the morning specifically. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because that seems like that's when the brain is the most supple yeah. and like the least distracted by the business of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I know you're a very prolific writer and, and, and you write all the time. And so here we are talking and it's kind of mid-afternoon Eastern time. I'm just kind of wondering, have you done a lot of writing today? Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, actual night writing, even though I usually write in the morning. And by night writing, you mean uh, hanging out in a talking car with uh, David Hasselhoff. Yeah, that's exactly what I don't mean. (laughs) Night Rider, a shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. So anyway, you've been writing at night. Yeah, I, uh, I just uh, I just switch over to writing after dinner, which is not my usual thing. I do usually get up and, and write for three or four hours and then go on to 
editing, administrative tasks, managerial things. But I have a a nonfiction deadline I can't really talk about too much uh, for a <laughs> pretty amazing uh, cover story for a magazine. And uh, so that's taken up a lot of my time through the end of the year. Um, we're starting a nonprofit, so that's taking a lot of time this week. Uh, so I've, I've been in kind of bylaws, articles in corporation hell, which is not something I'm familiar <laughs> with. Um, and I'm not sure we'll wind up in the novels. Uh, so it's an, it's an atypical week, I guess I would say. Is the uh, Sunshine State Biodiversity Group the nonprofit that you're referring to? Yes, it is. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into that. I mean, obviously, you're very concerned about ecological issues. It's all over the place in your writing, both in terms of the kind of fantastical, the things you can extrapolate from trends and phenomena that you know are happening in the real world, but also, um, you know, what can be done locally observing your local environment. Mm -hmm. um, like I personally associate the idea of rewilding one's backyard or just rewilding of, of urban areas. That's something I've, I associate with you, or for me, you were the person who kind of popularized the idea to me. So um, yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit about just your overall interest in those issues, but also specifically the Sunshine State Biodiversity Group. Yeah, it weirdly grew out of this um this kind of gap that I usually fill with writing coffee table books and stuff. Usually after a couple of novels, I need a break and I, I write something nonfiction wise. And lately, you know, it was things like wonder book, uh, steampunk Bible and other kind of coffee table, you know, graphics, heavy, very different from the novels kinds of books, a, a graphic novel called secret life. But I decided uh, the more I saw the urgency of trying to preserve stuff in North Florida to, to kind of fill that gap a different way, which was first with politics and an ill-fated uh, helping uh, found, an ill-fated uh, um, progressive website called Our Tallahassee and getting involved with local politics uh, to uh, what seems like uh, only limited effect the last year. And so transitioning from that and the, the local elections uh, to, to thinking about the future uh, came upon this idea that was originally just basically, let's do a Southern Reach residency, you know, themed to, you know, my most popular books to get widespread support that, that grew into this umbrella organization, the Sunshine State Biodiversity Group, uh, which is going to basically be sponsoring a rewilding center, a student journalism wing, uh, environmental student journalism, uh, something called Power Flower that <laughs> We get a chuckle out of every time we say those words. Uh, that's kind of like a youth uh, native plants program uh, and, and and things like that. So and the residency. So uh, this is a way to kind of like do community building to get a lot of important environmental work done and see some substantive things happen uh, and put them out in the world uh, and actually see some some results that that I think. Um, will help, uh, you know, just basically quality of life uh, in this area if we're, if we're fortunate enough to have an impact. I mean, that's amazing. And um, I, I can only just imagine just what I've gleaned of your passion for that, that that must be a very exciting thing. I mean, that must be as exciting as any creative project that you could ever be involved in. Well, I mean, it is. It's also uh, in some ways more collaborative. Uh, we have two other uh, very integral board members, a writer, uh, C.D. Davidson Hires, who have actually collaborated with on nonfiction, a, a New Republic article on the hurricane, and Katie Shardle, a local musician and writer, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, there's a very creative collaboration there, even though it's a nonprofit, which doesn't sound like it's necessarily very creative. We're having a lot of fun with how we imagine and reimagine what environmentalism looks like and what communication to the general public looks like on some of these issues. And, uh, you know, it all feeds into other things. So I, I do think that 
the things I'm learning on this side, not necessarily the ins and outs of articles of incorporation, but some of the other research we have to do on local issues will feed in uh, to the fiction as well. I mean, it, it all tends to to kind of collide in different ways. And then I'm doing a rewilding nonfiction book down the road. And so I'm sure that this will feed into that as well. Sort of an account of your own experience, uh, rewilding your own backyard? Uh, I, I've been frustrated in the same way I was frustrated with Wonderbook. With Wonderbook, I was frustrated that I, there was never a general writing book that had anything other than extremely mimetic Hemingway-like examples in it. And so, and also had this opportunity to create something that was fully illustrated, which had never been done before. Uh, with the rewilding book, it's more that I find that a lot of um, gardening books and, and rewilding books even exist at a level of hierarchy I, I'm not as fond of, which is to say very much regional or giving you specific examples from a region. Uh, and instead of thinking conceptually about, you know, how you should look at a space like your yard uh, and how you should uh, render things visible that may be invisible to you about it before you even start rewilding, to just give one example. So it's going to be a really high level, but also, uh, again, richly illustrated, richly diagrammed, hopefully give you all the information you need, but, but make you really think about the world differently uh, more than tell you you need to plant this in this spot, so to speak. I sometimes sort of halfway joke uh, about rewilding my yard just because I don't maintain it very well, you know? Oh. <laughs> well, that's a legitimate way to rewild it, <laughs> potentially. But, but, but then I read something you said about not quite realizing how many invasive species had been brought in and you were letting those run rampant as well. And that made me think, okay, you might want to do more than just, you know, not mow the grass uh, in this case. But it's cool to think of a book that might give someone a, a friendly, conversational uh, way of getting into some of these very heady topics. Yeah, well, I mean, I also like the idea because it's like you're kind of alluding to. It's not. Uh, it's very democratic, which is to say, it can be done just through not spending money and not doing things. <laughs> so that's that's why it approach it. It uh, it, it kind of appeals to me um, because I I I wouldn't want to be promoting or championing something that seem kind of elitist or there was a barrier to entry to. Um, so I do think everyone can get involved in some way. Not everyone has a full ecosystem off the back of their house in a ravine quite like you have, though. Well, As I found that out, having read some of your fiction already, yeah. I was like, oh, of course this guy has a, a, a you know, the, the 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 world of the wild right outside his door. <laughs> um, but you seem to be such like an apt uh, listener to those things and like so interactive with it in a way that honestly is, is, I find it really, I mean, there's a lot of humor in the way you talk about these things, but it's such an important thing to realize like the effect you can actually have on the space around you. Yeah, well, I mean, we're 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 benefiting in Tallahassee by the fact that there are fifty to hundred of these little ravines that are steep enough you can't uh, develop at the bottom of them, so houses ring them, and they create de facto, if not particularly protected green spaces and wooded areas that are basically the last sanctuaries in the city for animals and also uh, green greenways to other other ravines so to speak and so uh, it's it's strange because people think of florida they think of basically of south florida and flatness but in fact we're close to georgia and we have a fair amount of decent elevation and that in the ravines has kind of uh, helped preserve an unprecedented amount of urban wildlife. I mean, it's it's ridiculous the amount of of wildlife in this area. I mean, in a good way. Well, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and mm. and um, Alabama is probably more biologically and topographically and geographically interesting than than a lot of people realize as well. Yes, 
One of the uh, biggest uh, issues right now is that Alabama has one of the last remaining amazing intact ecosystems along parts of various rivers, and uh, that's being eaten up by development. And in part, it's being eaten up by development because people don't realize that Alabama is possibly one of the most diverse, biodiverse uh, uh, states in the union. So, um, you know, it's the Southeast has always been extremely, extremely verdant in many different ways. And um, resilient thankfully uh but north florida is probably the wildest of it i mean there are parts of north florida here that there's not even really a dirt road or anything and you have absolutely no cell reception still uh and you can easily get lost and i don't i don't think that's true of of every place uh not to slight other places but but it does add an element of urgency in terms of trying to protect that because once that's gone it's gone yeah i've heard you refer to that before that idea of kind of the ability to get lost and in a positive sense, like you'll talk about getting lost in an almost wistful way. And um, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I have been lost in the woods and it was a little scary, but I still have this overall abiding sense of awe uh, when it comes to nature. And and I like getting out there. I like being in remote places. I like the idea that there are certain things you can only see if you if you really hoof it and you put yourself in the right place in the right time. And I think you are willing to do that. And you know, plus you have an eye for these things that are sort of they really happen, but they they, they seem uncanny. Mm-hmm. Like I know you had a, a childhood experience that was formative, looking out a window when when you were sick in bed and and seeing some hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. And um, also, you've talked about seeing a dolphin in an, in an inland stream and how that kind of causes a moment of dissonance before you go, oh, okay, yeah, of course that can exist within our world, even if it seems otherworldly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's interesting to me because I don't necessarily even know what think when I'm writing them that I think of them as otherworldly experiences necessarily. I do think of them sometimes as ecstatic surprises uh, to some extent, and that I value quite a bit because I think it's difficult sometimes to receive those moments uh, in our mundane going about our existence uh, otherwise, just because we sometimes just don't recognize the potential for that in a landscape we're familiar with. But I grew up in Fiji, which was definitely a tropical paradise. and so I don't really, I, I don't really have that that distance from nature, so to speak. I don't really see it as a separate thing, and I, I definitely don't don't fear it or you know, uh, feel trepidatious about going out hiking on my own. The only thing I ever really worry about is um, I'm not real fond of encountering wild boars uh, while. I- <laughs> I'm hiking. Uh, give me an old-fashioned, small Florida black bear any day. <laughs> it's totally fine. Um, but that would be like the only situation where I'd be like looking for trees to climb or something <laughs> because that's not something to mess around with. But but it's still not really fear. Um, I really just don't have that that uh, distance from what you think of as the natural world. And and part of the 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 I think the the attraction of the books ultimately is the way that they hopefully draw you in in a tactile and, and very personal, intimate way and make you kind of experience that. And some people may recoil from that as in some way frightening, but it's not necessarily meant to be. It's more usually meant to be maybe something unknown, maybe something that I've transformed into something uncanny, but still 
possibly even with moments of terror, uh, moments of beauty as well. So you know that dichotomy puts me in mind of a couple things. Um, one is the the blurb uh, that Colson Whitehead has on on the back of the hardcover version of um, Dead Astronauts, where he refers to your writing. He's talking about Born, but it says uh, that you continue your investigation into the malevolent grace of the world. And I thought that phrase "malevolent grace" was a good one for you because it it does. Seem like those two competing but coexisting impulses are are at work in a lot of your in a lot of your fiction. And the other thing it made me think of is when we talk about the beauty and the horror in, in a sense of of the natural world. Um, I think that I think of Algernon Blackwood's story, The Willows, which is all about that, the awesomeness versus the the unknown and the mystery. Because what happens in that story is unquestionably scary, but that doesn't mean that it's evil. And I I think that. That's kind of present in your work, even even with you know your sentient characters, not just the natural world. Yeah, no, I'm I I don't really I'm not really interested in um, binaries. I don't really if I'm gonna also even if I'm gonna in, inhabit any kind of uh, character, it's not that I'm going to um, give a big thumbs up to bad acts. It's just simply that I'm going to try to understand the the person I'm inhabiting. Although I usually tend. To try to just stick on the human level to characters that are fairly complicated and messy and uh, maybe a little messed up, but also trying to do the right thing. So I don't really, you know, and, and even the people that are the antagonists, uh, yeah, sometimes they're out and out just <laughs> really bad people because unfortunately, you know, even in like my day job life, I have met people that I think are just really bad people. Um so it's not like, you know, you're supposed to write from complexity and nuance, but but you also have to recognize that in the real world, nuance and complexity don't always exist <laughs> right? with regard to people. So um, so balancing all of that and then just always trying to see from the perspective, uh, the non-human perspective, what, you know, as much as I can possibly imagine what that is like. Uh, and I always use tricks like the fox and dead astronauts is a fox that's been altered by humans to have slightly more human consciousness. Uh, but then also I'm still tricking the reader a bit because even with that, a, a real fox would give an account basically in a, in smells and you'd have like a novel full of smells and you'd have to interpret that as a human being because it really wouldn't be like anything, any narrative that a human being would create. So, um, so you're always doing kind of like an approximation. You're just trying to get people to maybe uh, get out of themselves or out of their own perspective. Uh, even if you're using a trick or you're using something that's not inherently possible to do. It's not really possible to portray uh, a point of view that's non-human, uh, but you try to create an approximation of it that feels true uh, based on what you know. Well, the consciousness of the fox is is only one of many that we we're uh, uh, made privy to that you utilize in, in in dead astronauts. It's a from that sense, it, like narratively, it's a very fractured story. It's kind of bold, honestly. I wonder how many people thought, oh, there's a sequel to Born, and it's a 300 page prose poem. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, hmm. Yeah, not interested. Well, I mean, I don't know about that. I, I feel like people would still be interested if they're fans of your work, but um, it is still impressive that you were able to balance the needs of of a book that is rich with incident and has all these great characters, mm -hmm. but is is also comprised of you know literary and and sometimes even typographical experiments. Well, I mean, they're still very much tied to character, so I think that is maybe one of the things because. Uh, you know, it, 
they they they're experimental because I decided to commit so deeply. I hope to how I think the character would express themselves, right? To some degree, even if we're talking about a third person account, where you're kind of a little bit removed, and so that may uh, take a little bit of the experimentalness out because experimentalists, especially just a casual like you know, if you say that word, uh, people tend to think of something abstract. Mm-hmm. And I would say that Dead Astronauts is definitely not abstract. It's extremely visceral and image oriented and very much uh, kind of living in the body. And so, you know, hopefully that, um, you know, ameliorates the idea of formal experimentation enough that people can become immersed in it because I do like to experiment, but I, I'm not usually trying to throw the reader out of the story. I'm trying to actually immerse them more deeply if they're willing to follow me. Uh, and of course, some people on dead astronauts are not, and I totally, totally understand that. It's not, it's not a book for everyone. And, and not, you know, there's lots of books that I don't like that I realize it's just not for me. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I was really thrilled that a lot of people did, did actually respond to that book on an emotional level. Well, I mean, I think for me, it was, um, especially moving, coming on the heels of Born and then uh, The Strange Bird, which um, are both like very emotional stories. Uh, I mean, there's something very deeply emotional you can connect with. I mean, Born is a very, almost an optimistic Mm -hmm. uh, story about characters that you care about, you know, by the time you get to the end of Born, there's something very rewarding about about what the way you approach those characters. Mm -hmm. And then The Strange Bird kind of takes it into a different, zone. It's a little bit more horrific and maybe even tragic, mm-hmm. but it also has a sort of beauty to it. And it also carries through this various stages of, you might say, this thing is dead, but we're still spending time with its consciousness, mm. you know? And I think that then to read Dead Astronauts is like, it's kind of a mind blower. I mean, you know, I, I hate to say this. I don't, I don't think about adaptation as the goal of fiction. I love fiction on the page. I love books on the shelf. Um, I love to thumb through them. I love the way they smell, all that stuff that a book nerd does. But I do sometimes, I am very guilty of making the movie in my head. And the movie or show, I decided it would be like a a limited series on television or something. It had to be. Well, AMC is working on one, so... (laughs) I have to say, there's something so eminently visualizable about the born world, that whole world, mm. that by the time I got to Dead Astronauts, I was so in it, and I was just, my mind was blown by some of the answers we were getting, but also mm. thinking in terms of this as a story I'm watching, it's like, oh, it's really cool to come back and find out so much about Charlie X, and find out how connected he's been to this stuff, and how important he was to the origin of some things that we may have wondered about. Mm-hmm. But it also, it's not about that plot somehow, as much as it is the emotional journey so that yes at the end of this to see the tragedy in a in a character as odious perhaps as what charlie x becomes mm-hmm. um is an example of maybe what you were just saying that like this is it, and maybe even wick in born who's morally mm-hmm. dubious in a lot of ways but given his circumstances and his surroundings he's there's a compassion and a relatability to to that character that mm-hmm. i think it's great that you don't try to provide easy moral answers. Not to say that there's not a heavy code of morality that threads through your writing, but just that it's not, um, it's like, okay, the consciousness of this writer is not amoral, but he's depicting a world that is, it doesn't hew to any rule book. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the cliche people say is even villains are sort of the hero of their own story. Yeah, no, I I don't want to, I I don't want to do an easy psychology though, like uh, giving Hannibal Lecter a backstory that makes him sympathetic. Uh, But I do want to understand where the character is coming from. Uh, and I think that Charlie X is a pretty great example of that uh, in terms of, you know, it also, it also has to be very specific because I think if you 
get into general like answers for the that with regard to a character you wind up with something that's potentially cliche mm-hmm. uh and so that's why it almost has to be so visceral uh and in sometimes in some ways horrific so that it becomes so specific it couldn't be the story of any other person so to speak so um you know that that, that and then all of this ties back especially charlie x to you know how we view biotech and created creatures right now uh and part of the impulse that i'm exploring beyond a lot of the other things i'm exploring about the environment in those books is just this idea that we seem to have skipped a step recently possibly because of the influence of um what you might call the tech industry or or startups or whatever in terms of uh you know should we do something has <laughs> become not a question. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it feels like there's a lot of ethical lapses that have occurred uh, as a result. I remember somebody talking about a startup with regard to uh, genetic uh, manipulation and saying someday kindergartners be, may be able to create small creatures in their classrooms with nary a thought of whether this was actually a good thing <laughs> to create disposable animals in your kindergarten and what that, that tells children <laughs> at all. So, um, so, you know, part of, you know, there's a lot of grotesquery in Born and in the other books that uh, in that series that, that really is a true reflection, I think of where we are ethically. And we just don't think about it because of like the seamlessness of modern technology, the way we dump anything disturbing uh, as far away from us as possible. I mean, we just went through three years of pandemic and nary a one of us saw the bodies, so to speak, the, the coffins, the, you know, I mean, it's, it's been completely sanitized. And so, you know, in, in a different way, uh, I, I feel like the, the horrors in born kind of, um, are trying to show respect, uh, in a sense, uh, towards that issue. Well, that's reflected in the the ecological collapse uh, that happens in the story, as well. You know that you you see the sort of end result of like, okay, if things just keep getting pushed and pushed until it breaks, the whole system breaks. Um, this is the kind of world we might end up with, and um, you know it's something I think about every time I take out the trash, every time I flush the toilet. I think about if there's a hell, it's somehow it's it's all the waste, it's all the stuff that you've 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 put away. And pushed away from yourself that you never really dealt with. It's all that just waiting for you. Well, I mean, argu- arguably, we haven't built systems that are are equal to the amount of uh, waste in general we produce. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of pathetic. Even even on the recycling side, which we now know is incredibly pathetic, just how how little I can now recycle here in Tallahassee um, as a compared to 10 years ago and, and how it, it's even meaningless regardless anyway. But, um, but we go through these kinds of rituals that are, um, are, I guess to protect uh, everybody mentally and to protect systems that are, <laughs> are not, not good, but are profitable for someone. Um, so, and that's another thing, hopefully the books begin to rip away at, even though obviously everyone has their own uh, areas where they're not, you know, they don't, that I, there's things I don't see um, that I should see probably. Uh, but there are definitely things I think that the books try to illuminate or make visible that, that hopefully, you know, lodge in, in the reader's mind and maybe change how they think about certain, certain issues. There is no-
you have like a, a trail cam or several trail cams, I guess, maybe behind your house and, and you know, you'll catalog the, the wildlife that you see there. And I find that to be a really interesting way of addressing, you know, the the world that's just just beyond our, our sight in a lot of cases. Um, and, you know, I'm in a neighborhood in, uh, in Baltimore. We're in a suburb that's technically part of Baltimore City proper, but we're right on the edge of the city. And, um, you know, in my neighborhood, I'll see a fox uh, from time to time. And um, just recently, it was about 6.30 in the morning, my wife and I, I was driving her to the train station. And, uh, you know, in our neighborhood, just walking through people's yards, there were about six or seven deer. And um, there's patches of woods and hiking trails and parks and different things in Baltimore. There's actually a lot of woods around here in Maryland. So maybe there's a way for those deer to pass through the city uh, and not just be in danger the whole time. But um, I find it simultaneously majestic and and very sad when I see these wild animals in my neighborhood because it it feels like, I don't know, maybe I'm being cynical, but I feel like bad things are going to happen to them. I mean, a lot of this is really poor planning and design with regard to cities and other things like that. There's absolutely no reason why you can't have a lot of uh, continuous, uh, contiguous uh, urban wilderness coming through a city and do it in such a way that it it helps promote uh, flow of wildlife and, and why is beneficial to wildlife. Uh, but in fact, we, we don't really have what you might call, and I don't mean central planning because I'm not sure that that's the answer either, but just innovative planning because we don't value those things. So if we did value those things, we would have cities that are more like Helsinki, which is quite fascinating. And I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it's basically like a city that if you can imagine there's a it goes all the way down to a, a, a you know the sea basically, but there's like a hand of wilderness running through it, uh, and between the fingers are where the buildings are. But there's literally, if you look on a map, these green areas that kind of like just come down like like fingers on a hand and go right through it, and then back up into more wild places. And um, it's one of those cities where when you walk it, you feel really a sense of of well being in part because of that, because you're surrounded by it, uh, you know, and so. The way we think about even things like, you know, cemeteries, golf courses, uh, church grounds affects a lot of this. You know, it's like, uh, are we going to make it welcoming for wildlife? Are we going to make it welcoming for ecosystems? Or are we going to make it this sterile hellscape that we don't realize is? And so that's, I think, one hope, too, is it simply even without retrofitting our cities, without, you know, really doing massive what would amount to kind of like green engineering, to do that, you can reimagine enough uh, with what's existing, even in terms of green spaces that are really just underperforming, uh, to create something better, I think. And and so that's, that's really also why I focus on rewilding, because, uh, you know, there's only so much you can control with regard to development. Uh, in part because our systems are so messed up and the the power uh, the power imbalance is just too great with regard to the influence that developers have, uh, most of whom, quite frankly, you know, unfortunately, have no interest in conservation as well. It seems oddly, bizarrely counterproductive because, like in here in Tallahassee, if developers actually set aside land for conservation, if they actually uh, you know, invested in this stuff as well, they would have much less of a battle on their hand uh, with regard to some of the things that they want to do. Uh, and it wouldn't really cost them that much. But but anyway, yeah. So so it's, it's really a, a lack of imagination. It's a lack of care. It's a, a lack of what we care about. Uh, and that's something that I'm very adamant about is trying to 
to find ways to make people care more because it actually also affects whether we're going to survive. <laughs> uh, we could literally still survive a climate uh, crisis by the skin of our teeth uh, and still be in massive amounts of trouble because of uh, uh, species die-off and biodiversity loss. Uh, and, and also, obviously, those two things are often related. Um, yeah. they're, they're intricately related in ways we don't always think about. So, um, yeah, so it's this, it's this two-pronged thing. And then lurking in the background is simply that we could also just drown in plastics in the next 30 years. Um, so we have tons of problems, and we have uh, very little political will, I think, unfortunately, to, to do all the right things, even as we are making progress on, on green energy to some extent. like to uh, spend a little time talking about the the formal aspect of your writing because your 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 fiction your prose does take lots of different forms and and the first one I'd like to mention is um, something we've been alluding to already this those sections of dead astronauts that are adopting the consciousness of the fox uh, or the foxes as it may be um, there is this repetition there's a few phrases, simple phrases that are repeated over and over again with some variation. Like, yeah, and you make subtle changes throughout, right? It evolves. There are some sneaky little changes in places, yes. Yeah. I mean, so there is this suggestion of time passing or maybe generations of foxes that are kind of going through roughly the same experiences in a slightly different way. Um, and there's a little bit of, of humor in there too. But um, I, I feel like the repetition has this effect, uh, of you know becoming like a chant or a mantra or something it's almost hypnotic I, I i don't know if some people look at a page of text like that and they just scan it with their eyes and they don't actually read it but i'm the sort of person that reads through it and i i really think it's an effective use of of you know the kind of uh experimental techniques we were talking about where it's like a it's it's sort of a poetic conceit that that actually pays off in terms of the drama of the story. You know, it, it's funny. It's like you write something and you don't necessarily expect when you, when a reader encounters a, a, a typographical experiment uh, that kind of forms a pattern, you don't necessarily expect them to read it all the way through. So I think it's valid to not read it all the way through. I wish people had not, who didn't like it being there, didn't ding me for having to read it all the way through because you didn't have to read it all the way through but also there's a a spoken word element to it which is that i do sometimes start cold start a reading and i did this on the dead astronauts tour before the pandemic in december of 2019 i just cold start reading the part about what's done to foxes or reading the other part and the thing about the repetition spoken aloud is i think it does begin to have an emotional resonance but then also there's the fact that I can emphasize different words. So even the rep repeated section that's, I think, just basically the same paragraph over and over again, or less than that, not the stuff done to them, but the other paragraphs, um, the emphasis on one word over the other um, uh, creates a difference in how you perceive the sentence. Uh, and so it's definitely... Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that's drawing uh, that's in Dead Astronauts is drawing on how I think about performance as well uh, as what's on the written page. 
another book of yours that is experimental in a totally different way, um, but uh, just as effective, is uh, City of Saints and Mad Men, which is the first book in the Ambergris trilogy. Mm-hmm. And uh, each book in the Ambergris trilogy has a different feel to it. So it, it's a it's an experimental trilogy kind of in that way. But um, City of Saints and Mad Men is a, a set of four novellas that uh, the edition I have has an additional set of appendices that are some the length of the novellas themselves and then other pieces that are shorter stories. And I think it's a collection of a lot of works about Ambergris that you've written. Um, well, well, actually, there was a collection of four novellas that came out out of necessity that came out from an independent press to start. And then the, the true vision was always to have all that other material in there. Uh, so so basically, I had the opportunity not long after the first edition came out to, to add that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, basically over the years in different editions, little changes have been made. A few things have been added here or there. Uh, so, yeah, it is the most complete edition, but the that edition in in some form has existed since 2020 2003 basically oh that's cool it makes sense that you had always intended it to have all those pieces because they all sort of feed off of each other um i actually read the short story the cage first which is one of the appendices just because i'd heard that was a good story and it definitely got me curious about the world of ambergris and all the mysteries so i dove right into the book from there but i also then would go back into the appendices and read certain parts like in between the novellas that seem to be referred to in the novellas and by the time it got to the end i i i, I honestly do think it's a it's a singular statement it, it all hangs together there's a, a real playfulness to all the all the different sort of voices you conjure, not through uh, you know writing about the characters, but revealing the characters through things that these characters have written about the world of Ambergris. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know earlier it was funny when you said you were reading articles of incorporation and stuff for your nonprofit, and how you didn't see how that reading was going to feed back into your fiction in a useful way. I could totally see a part of a City of Saints and Mad Men being. Um, articles of incorporation yeah. <laughs> that are somehow satirical. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there are font notes at the end that are are satirical. The font notes uh, at the end of the book are presented as if they're basically describing kinds of wine. Uh, yeah, so so one thing that the that book especially trades off of in many of the pieces is this idea of using non-fictional forms for fictional purposes. And it's something that uh, really is obsessive to me in reading non-fiction is I, I love to encounter a non-fiction book that's basically written by a crackpot. Like one of my favorite books is uh, Penguins, a book from the 1960s by this penguin researcher that's supposed to be a general uh, guide uh, to penguins. But it turns out that basically somebody he was in a a, a collegial fight with has a different view of where this back claw on uh, a particular South American penguin's foot, how it evolved. Uh, And so halfway through the book, there's suddenly this deranged rant uh, about this subject and about this other researcher um, that basically turns the book into fiction. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I think you can find unreliable narrators in nonfiction as well. And I I find it fascinating to sometimes use these nonfictional forms for fictional purposes because the reader tends to bring what their, their experience or their expectation is for the nonfiction form into that fictional context. And that allows you to do some really interesting things with regard to narrative. Um, You know, so there's the early history of Ambergris, uh, uh, which is definitely, you know, presented as a historical essay. Uh, and then several other pieces, there's a, a lot of stuff that's illustrated in various ways. Even the cage is presented as 
basically torn out pages from some author's collection who lives in Ambergris and, you know, which is an imaginary city. So the other thing about it is that using these nonfiction forms, I thought at the time and still feel kind of validates the uh, reality of this place that doesn't exist and makes it seem more real and less escapable. Uh, and, and so I find that to be kind of an immersive technique. Whereas if you use some of these ideas and some of the metafictional things in a realistic mimetic context, they would really stand out as, as experimental and they wouldn't necessarily reinforce reality. They would throw you out of it. Uh, so, so that's something I was definitely grappling with, uh, with that book. Yeah. It reinforces the reality and it um, honestly provides a little bit of the, the thrill, the, 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 the a lot of the humor and the life in this book uh, comes from parsing how all those disparate pieces are, are, are chipping away at the same narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like all the little character reveals that come through that. Like I particularly love the passive aggressive, I guess also aggressive aggressive uh, footnotes uh, in, in one section where where the, the person writing the, the piece basically says, I know that nobody wants to read footnotes and uh, I'm going to put all the interesting stuff in the footnotes and the, and the part that's the main text is going to be kind of dry. And so if you don't, if you don't read these footnotes, you're, you're really missing out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was hilarious to me. And also I, um, I appreciated the fact that you, you throw in a kind of an author insertion character, a Jeff Vandermeer character to sort of add this other meta layer. How do you balance that, that idea of like, what's a, what's a foreground detail and what's a detail that you're going to put in a footnote? It's very much like, in a weird way, Dead Astronauts, which is a very different book. It's like everything is done for a reason. Um, and even the authorial assertion, uh, insertion is basically uh, to unmoor you completely from anything other than this imaginary city. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it is like picking your spots with regard to structure. I, I study a lot of uh, literature for the structure, not for any other influence, but just literally how can I use this in some other way? Uh, so, you know, but then you pick your spot. You, 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 you find the context that makes sense and makes sense for your strength as a writer, um, which is another really important thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of experiments I do not try because they do not suit my strengths as a writer. Uh, and I think that's one of the more important things that you can learn is not just what you need to improve, uh, but what you will never be able to do. Uh, and there's certain things that you think you'd never be able to do that you can learn by simply inhabiting a different kind of writing space. Mm-hmm. And so I do a, a great deal of continuing education to get to the point where I can do all the different styles that are in City of Saints because they're all written from different stylistic points of view. Or I can have a book like Finch that's basically a bunch of sentence fragments in a noir hard-boiled style, you know, the third book in the Ambergris series that's so different uh, from City of Saints that, that you may not even think it's hopefully the same writer. Um and and that's that's that that's because I don't like to write the same book twice, um, even if the preoccupations are the same, even if uh, uh, the environmental message is often there. Uh, I just don't like writing the same book twice, uh, and, and 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 that's all, I, in a way epitomized by City of Saints and Mad Men because as my first book, it was it literally is stories about the same place but in in vastly different styles. When I'm reading a book, I have this thing about the why and the how of the book. Um, the why am I reading it is kind of a, it's just a simple question about the text. You know, the, there's something in the text that's drawing me to it. 
Uh, every book has has its own little spell that it casts on me if I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the how am I reading it is not something that every book has to answer, but I like it when books try to answer that question of like, how is this book in your hands? And the uh, kind of patchwork nature of the storytelling in uh, City of Saints and Mad Men and especially with the addition of the Jeff Vandermeer character, because you can look at the cover and see written by Jeff Vandermeer. It's like, well, there's a guy in this book named Jeff Vandermeer whose details don't map exactly onto you, mm-hmm. but there's enough similarity there that we can we can sort of suppose that the book we're holding in our hand is an artifact from Ambergris. Um, I just think that adds a cool layer to the to the reality of the book, and it's a it's a it's a it's a neat approach to world building. Well, the the original. Um... Uh, hardcover for the extended version that's now the paperback uh, had two things that are are missing from this version because they can't really be replicated. The original uh, had a kind of Baroque illuminated manuscript illustration in the middle, but the actual cover uh, in kind of an updated illuminated manuscript style of type had a, a sh- actual short story running across the front and back cover against a black background. And in that story, there's a character trying to make it to the city of Ambergris, who is whose boat is waylaid by a giant squid. And as he falls out, also out of his pocket falls a copy of City of Saints and Mad Men that, that just basically drowns in the river. Um, so, so, you know, the original version starts with that. Uh, and then the other thing that couldn't be replicated because it's just such a pain in the ass to actually do is that in the original version, there's an actual encrypted story uh, of several pages that you decrypt uh, using paragraphs and sentences and words in the rest of the book. Uh, the problem is as each edition shifts, you would have to change all those numbers for them to be the same words. And so it's only ever been replicated in the German edition with the Germans absolutely insisting that even though they had to start from scratch, that they would include this 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 encrypted story um, mm-hmm. using entirely different pages and paragraphs and everything and page breaks. Um, but, uh, but that also, uh, although a formal experiment, uh, is another example of actual immersion because as you word by word decrypt this story, you actually write that story, which is set in Ambergris. And then also each word is carefully chosen for its emotional resonance in its original context. So you as the reader also have inflamed in your mind that this the <laughs> that you're, you're transcribing is actually a the at like a pivotal, horrifying part of another story. It's not just a random the from somewhere else. It's a load-bearing uh, the. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you know, how many people actually did that? I think maybe maybe there's 300 people in the world who ever uh, decrypted that story. Uh, but then one of them just wrote to me last week saying that because the person they were dating decrypted that story, it's why they fell in love with them and why they got married, <laughs> which I don't really believe. Like, there's got to be other things too, but, right. um, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not the response I expected when I included the story, but um, there's a, a ridiculous uh, amount of um, engagement with, with this stuff that I never really expected w- would happen with readers, even if I, I had a wide audience. Uh, so that, that's very, very gratifying. The last thing I wanted to mention about the Ambergris cycle is um, the story learning to leave the flesh. That was the first story, yeah. So in other words, there's a germ of an idea that you then realize you want to explode out from that, yeah. fr- from that story. When reading that story, it feels like it's an Ambergris, but there's a few details that make it not feel like Ambergris. Yeah, I mean, in this case, basically, I was fascinated by this idea of Albemuth Boulevard that's in learning to leave the flesh. And 
And I began to see the outlines of this imaginary city. And so what happens then is I don't force the idea. What I do is I say in the back of my head to my subconscious, basically, I kind of want to write about this place. There's something there beyond this story. Uh, And so what happened was basically maybe two years later, I woke up from this dream that was basically the first part of the first novella, Drayden in Love. And I got up and I, I wrote the first five or six pages uh, and you know, they're, they're set basically on album youth Boulevard, the same setting as learning to leave the flesh. And part of the disconnect or the time between those things is sometimes you write a proto story where, you know, it's, it's kind of like a proof of concept. It may be its own thing, but it's also a proof of concept for something else. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really write it right away because you have to reimagine it as basically a different place. So it's almost like learning to leave the flesh, the album youth Boulevard there, is a different reality in a metaverse that then the Ambergris stories are a, a different version of. Uh, the same thing happened with Born because I wrote the story called The Situation, which has a giant psychotic bear in it, but he's an HR manager uh, in a weird, very strange biotech company. Uh, and as soon as I wrote that story, which was kind of making sense of a workplace that I had left, uh, a very horrific one, uh, I realized that I wanted to write about the bear again, that there was something else there. But again, I had to have the delay of time to completely reimagine the setting. So that story really, even though there is a character called Mord in it, it's a very different Mord. It's nothing to do with the Born universe, uh, but sometimes it just takes time. But you recognize, hopefully, as a writer over time, when there's something there that you want to write further. And then you just, I, I personally don't force that aspect of it. I just kind of like trust my imagination and subconscious to eventually come up with, with something later. Well, I noticed that when reading the situation uh, about, you know, the Mord that was in there seeming like this could be some kind of early version of the Mord that we know in Born, but it doesn't really seem like it. it's quite the same trajectory. And um, there is a Mord, if it's not the Mord, in the story, The Third Bear, too. Mm-hmm. And there's some discussion of it coming through a portal from somewhere else. And that's another thing that I was like uh, very tempted to try to place on a timeline with The Third Bear and Born and figure out if we were learning the story of Mord. And it just didn't seem like we were, but it didn't bother me because it sort of fits with this world, especially after reading Dead Astronauts, where the 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 timeline is sort of fractured and there's certain things that you'll you'll twist yourself in knots trying to make them add up before you realize that they're not really meant to add up because there are fractured uh timelines in in that book. Um but especially after that, I realized that the the different mords, they are kind of the same mord and they're kind of not and and that you don't really need to define such things. Yeah. And I mean was something that I I think some most readers have gotten, but not necessarily all, and you're not necessarily supposed to, is that uh, in different parts of Dead Astronauts, there are these uh, sequence of numbers in the corners, and those are basically, or or at the beginnings of, of certain sections, but those are basically telling you you're in a different version of reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I when I first conceived of that, I thought i was I was actually having some problems with voice and what with one of the characters, and then I was like, "Oh, I see what the problem is. I'm trying to sync up the chronology of this section with this other section, and now I don't need to because this is a different version. This mm-hmm. is a different pocket universe, and so um you know especially when you're doing something that is extremely intricate but also is dealing in like five or six different 
semi-experimental ways of expression, uh, that was very liberating because the last thing you want to do when you're writing prose poetry is to worry about the chronology <laughs> of things that you're going along and be kind of pulled out of the, the emotion of the moment and the idea that you're kind of deliberately lost in the language, um, although hopefully you still have control over it. So, so that was kind of a pivotal point for that universe in general. It's like, oh, this doesn't have to match up. And that's actually kind of hilarious. Um, and 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 there and the thing that, that was really funny is that they wound up being mostly small things that readers wouldn't catch anyway. Um, but in fact, there are, uh, if you really look at it closely, <laughs> fairly big uh not they're not they're not actual flaws but there's fairly big differences in in the realities uh if you look at some of the background details and stuff it's almost like a metaverse version of a technique in city of saints and the ambergris books where you often have people relating details or writing about the same event or the same whatever but they have a different impression about what occurred mm -hmm. um and in that case, it's actually accurate because often you have people give different accounts of the same event, almost as if there was no objective truth to be found in what the event was or or what happened. Um, well, they say that eyewitness testimony is like seen as this gold standard, but that it's actually one of the least reliable uh, right. sources of information. Right. So I find that fascinating because I think you can also stitch together a convincing reality by having conflicting versions of the same event, uh, because that's those, just the way that the world works in general. How important is it to you that a reader figure all that out? Or do you have fun with the idea of, oh, is, the, is they're going to engage with it and have a relationship with my story, and that's what's more important than wh whether they understand, quote-unquote, the solution, the, the answers? I, I think it's really important that I know as a writer what kind of red herrings and what kinds of inconsistencies will will throw the reader out of the story and which ones they will engage with as kind of a puzzle or mystery. And I think if you look at all the different Reddits and, and Goodread discussions about the Southern Reach uh, trilogy, which you know ultimately has to be about something that's beyond human comprehension, so it can't ultimately explain everything or it defeats the whole premise or the thesis of the series, um, the willingness that people had to parse out the mysteries between Area X and then also just simply the paranoid secrecy of the secret agency, the Southern Reach, uh, really helped me in, in being able to create additional um, claustrophobia, um, horror, even a sense of beauty, uh, and in part also because our world <laughs> has been getting closer and closer to that state uh, of, of paranoia and claustrophobia in real life, as you know, even since the series has been out. Yeah. Uh, but that that speaks also to the fact that I very carefully then cataloged everything that was in there in terms of clues, in terms of you know. You know, is this too far? Even to the point where the hardcover of uh, the Area X hardcover that is an omnibus of all three books uh, actually deletes a couple of scenes from Authority. Uh, you know, one because it's not necessary if you're going to read right through, as opposed to pick up a book months after the first one. But then there are a couple of scenes that I realized were just too many red herrings and too much uh, to, to, for the reader to 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 believe in or hang on to. Uh, and so I deleted those in the hardcover. Um, I've heard some conventional wisdom among screenwriters about how many how many pages or minutes the audience can be confused. The pleasure of being confused and not knowing what's going on, meeting the moment where you go, now I don't have anything to hold on to, you know? And I think there is a constant play. Well, it, it depends on the kind of confusion. I mean, like I saw a reader review and I usually am fine with divergent reader reviews, but this one was kind of weird because it was like about Hummingbird Salamander and it complained that 
the protagonist didn't know what was going on at the beginning of the book and didn't know until the end. And of course it's basically a mystery and that's what a mystery does. Uh, and so, you know, there's also this issue of, um, is that reader just misreading or, uh, which is, you know, a thing in addition to divergent readings, but the, but, but then there's also the question you ask yourself as a writer, which is say in mixing genres, is there some protocol or some thing I put in there that for some readers makes them misidentify what the book is, and then they, this is the output of it. Uh, and so you do give that like serious consideration. The only problem being that is if I, you know, the next book after Hummingbird Salamander um, is, is, is about dead angels um, <laughs> and um, bears that devour you whole so you can travel across the time-space continuum. Uh, and it has nothing really to do with the techniques in Hummingbird Salamander. So it's like I can make a note of that uh, if I think it's something that's that's valuable to do a correction on, but but I'm not likely to write something that, that I can do the correction on for some time because it'll be something totally different. So, Well, you know, mentioning a Hummingbird Salamander, it is a, a I mean, I, I call it an eco-thriller is like putting it in a narrow category that I don't even know what that means, but it is separate from some of your other worlds. It doesn't have as much fantasy in it. I mean, it does have, I think, true horror in it, but not maybe in the way that some of your other works have played with it. But I think that one is such a story of the protagonist. Um, Jane is such an indelible character. Uh, she reminds me of um, uh, other characters I've seen where their quest, what they're on about, like the way that she sort of leaves her family behind, leaves everything behind. And then there's a moment late in the book where she gets an important letter that's been left for her by this mysterious person, Silvana. Um, and I love the way you you pinpoint that moment. I mean, to me, maybe this was the, cr the emotional crux of the thing was how happy she was to have the letter and then how tragic, it, the moment she realized that it was tragic for her that, that she was that happy to have that letter, that everything else that had fallen apart and everything else that had gone wrong, that she was so obsessed with finding the answers that like she actually leaves this really awkward situation with her father. And and I don't know, that notion of someone who's willing to leave it all behind for for an answer, for a quest, for a cause, um, that's what Hummingbird Salamander really left me with. And the, the kind of sadness in some ways of a life not lived uh, because you can't be both people. You can't be the person who enjoys your life and the person who keeps looking for answers. Yeah. And I mean, I think people of general readers have been very uh, kind to the book in that it's really about a person in a situation initially that a lot of people would would find a good situation, you know, a good fa a family life, a good job, et cetera. But something that really, for this particular person, is really not something that makes them happy. Uh, and you kind of get this the farther the book goes along because she seems the most herself when she's like literally on the run <laughs> in dire circumstances. And so it's a difficult character to write about. I mean, this is how this character came to me, but it's a character that that I think people have to be patient with because it doesn't necessarily reflect a relatable character in a, in a very kind of aggregate way. Uh, but I do think it's a that she's a compelling character and a fairly unique character, uh, even if it's for the reader to decide whether that characterization is successful or not. Um, and also just simply the physicality of her. Uh, one scene I wrote really early on that I couldn't get right was her, her running up this uh, hill to escape this guy who's following her. Uh, and then I finally realized two things. One, that she had such physicality that she would actually turn and confront the guy. Uh, but that secondly, she also had a recklessness in her that would do that. Because even though she has such a uh, immense physicality that she can 
definitely take this guy. He could have a gun too. So it's not just simply about her recognizing that she's stronger than this person or she's stronger than she has seen herself in the world, but also that she has this reckless side. Uh, and so those two pin two things kind of pinpointed the character uh, for me. Uh, but it is true. It is probably weirdly enough, the farthest <laughs> um, I'm allowed to go outside of a realm that doesn't have some, some kind of uncanny element or more speculative element, because in truth, it is just, it is a, is a, you know, novel set in the here and now, maybe 10 seconds beyond that. Uh, and, and I do recognize that the things that are in Annihilation, the things that are in some of those other books are the things that the readers really respond uh, to, uh, you know, and so there is still also a consideration beyond your strengths and weaknesses of, of where you can meaningfully meet the reader given their expectations of you as a writer when you have a fairly large body of work behind you. And, and another thing that's come out of this quite interesting is that, um, you know, the hummingbird and the salamander that are imaginary, the, the taxidermy she finds, the species, were actually created by a biologist named Dr. Megan Brown. She actually created the text that's about when she researches the two species, you know, uh, what they're like. Uh, and I included that pretty much verbatim as what she wrote. And then when it came time to write this, uh, hummingbird salamander novella, um, uh, that was also under contract called Unitopia. Uh, I actually just asked her, I, I said, would you mind writing about a science experiment gone wrong, um, inhabiting maybe another scientist's point of view, but still using what you do in your job uh, as like the protocols and everything set in Unitopia around the time that one of the main characters has kind of established this fairly unique kind of environmental commune. And so that's what she did. Uh, so we've actually collaborated on this novella um, and and she's written the, the rough draft, which I'm then going to inhabit and yes, change and whatnot. But, um, but it's been kind of interesting to also get that collaboration uh, out of Hummingbird Salamander. Also considering that she is a biologist, <laughs> there's a biologist in Annihilation and everything else. So, um, so that's been quite interesting. Well, the, the most recent thing you've put out is something that I've just finished reading, which I thought was really great. Thank you. Which is the novella Bliss. Mm. But I read the afterword to Bliss before I read the book. And so it was in my mind the whole time that you'd stated that horror is, is often a part of your writing, but that Bliss was, it was very much front and center in the story. And I thought, oh, how's that going to manifest? Because I think Jeff's books are sufficiently kind of creepy to me. You know, like I get what I want out of yeah. that. Like I, I don't, it's not the look over your shoulder type of horror. It's more the conceptual mind blowing kind of horror that, that again, it's in some of my favorite sci-fi and fantasy when it works well. Um, so maybe talk to me a little bit about that decision and also how it's, I feel, correct me if I'm wrong, but Bliss is kind of it took a while for me to realize what was so unique about the writing style for you, but I do think it's that you're spending, you jump around within a paragraph, you'll jump to different perspectives. It's whereas we've talked about this different sections of the books you've been writing, maybe different chapters from different points of view. Bliss really almost takes this idea of a band, a, a, a band called the the Glass Drifters, 
a folk band that's going off to this really mysterious, <laughs> very awful sounding gig. Um, deal keeps getting worse all the time, but you treat them almost like a three-headed beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder how much is that connected to the experience of the horror in the story? Well, I, I think it's because you're hopefully connected, even if you, you know, I think there's a character named Petey who's both exasperating and irritating and endearing at the same time, but yeah. you're, you're intimately involved with all three of them. Whereas if I'd use one viewpoint or switch between them, you wouldn't also see the connectivity between them because often their thoughts are playing off of reading each other's expressions or something else, or just the fact that they've known each other so long. And I also found fascinating the idea of, oh yeah, I can have multiple points of view in one scene in one paragraph if it is this unit that if that the reader thinks of as one thing, this band. And in fact, I I then use the same technique in Dead Astronauts uh, when you have the three dead astronauts, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the sections that's from their point of view, all three of their points of view in the same paragraphs. And so it wasn't that Bliss was the testing ground for that. It was just proof of, it just proved that it, it worked. Um, and so something that could be seen as experimental or extremely old fashioned because it used to be more done back in the day, uh, you know, becomes hopefully invisible and not an experimental technique and adds to the emotional resonance of the, of the piece. And I think that is, that is it because when the horrific moments come, you're not just getting one person's point of view on it, you're getting all three. And then there's a point where you don't have all three points of view. And I, I, I want that section to feel like, like you've lost a limb or something like, you know, and so I thought that was a fascinating, uh, uh, approach as well. Uh, kind of a sneaky way of, of changing the tone of something. Um, there's actually a similar approach in a totally different way, uh, in my novel Finch, where there's an interrogation sequence, uh, that a transcript is excerpted from at the beginning of each of the seven days that form the structure of the novel, the different sections. And then on Sunday, there's just the word Sunday in a blank page. And the idea is that the reader feels like a wall they've been relying on because they've gotten used to seeing this start each section has gone away and that something terrible has happened because of it. Um, and so I do think about that. I think about the the way that the reader is leaning on something or relying on something and what does it mean when it's gone? Is that an interesting effect? And it, by interesting effect, I mean, does it have emotional resonance? Does it pertain to the, the characters? Is it integral to the story? Um, and so there's a lot of moments like that that I consider like kind of sneaky, uncanny, weird things that... That I that I do sometimes unpack for like writing classes and stuff because they're not things that are likely to <laughs> to, to register because they're not supposed to. <laughs> they're just supposed to register in like how you feel about a scene. Like suddenly you feel more claustrophobic or you know, like in authority. I reused a lot of the dialogue in Annihilation as incidental dialogue as they're walking through corridors. And so a reader who goes right from Annihilation to Authority will get this weird deja vu they may not know where it's coming from because they're reliving the same dialogue in a different space and their mind may kind of remember it. So it's kind of a ghost situation. Uh, so, so all those kinds of techniques are kind of connected and, and I think um, useful. And, and in Bliss, uh, that, that, that would be definitely why, uh, you know, I'm kind of rambling now, but, but, but you're right. Yeah, it definitely, I think, impacts the, the level of the horror in it. It's a fascinating overlay of this emotional story with this truly horrifying, like, out-of-your-element 
story of like, I mean, and, and you're talking about the structure of the thing being kind of a thing that guides you through maybe the tonality of it. I, the, the chapters are like layers. We start with the trip, then we have the river, then we have the hotel. I think I'm getting them all right. And then we have the movie, you know, um, or the, I think that's it. But anyway, it's like each chapter is like a don't go in there kind of for these characters. And the fact that we're experiencing it with all of them together. And you talk about Petey being kind of like an irritating person, quote unquote irritating. It's like in that way that you're your friend who always cuts the tension right, and right. the friend who comes up and gives you too much of a back rub mm -hmm. when you seem to be off in your own mind. Like those people who drive you up the wall, but you love them to death. I feel like we know that's Petey. Yeah. And then I think Ed and Sarah, the other two, they're just as indelible, but they're maybe less like types. But mm -hmm. if this were a movie, you'd be expecting Petey to be the sort of instigator, the one who maybe trips up the most and causes the most trouble. And I like the way you even play with that idea that like when we do have a, a the, mo the break, the moment where things kind of turn sour in, her in terms of the horror, uh, it's not necessarily the way you would expect it to happen. And it's not the person that you would picture being the one who would break. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I did um, like the idea of two groups of people coming into contact with one another with very few points of commonality. Uh, so there would be instant misunderstanding. Yeah. Uh, and of course, one group has this secret purpose that, <laughs> that they kind of like overlay onto the situation, kind of assuming that the band is going to react one way and they don't. Um, so I, I think that's also where a lot of the the dark humor of the book comes from. Uh, there's actually fairly long conversations about film uh, in mm -hmm. one part um, that I had a lot of fun with, but at the same time, things are leaking in. Um, I even had fun with describing in three lines each course that comes out during the meal that they all have together um, yeah. and how the significance of that changes over the course of the scenes that, that you get that description. So, so even those things are not really inert. They're actually doing some work. Well, it's like a hellish scenario. It's like, it's getting more hellish almost and more decadent with the food and the whole situation. And the yeah. way you're describing the two groups of people, you could argue that the home team in this, um, uh, Bob Henry and Imo and Fang, mm -hmm. they are, uh, like they're so frustrated, and, and Sarah Sandra or Sandra Sarah, um, they're they're so frustratingly vague. All the, the, I mean, it just was driving me crazy how little information they were giving and how little like grace they were granting the the, the glass drifters in this situation where they're out of their element and they're not in control, and they were not you know like, I don't know I just thought, I just thought the tension of that dinner. Um, I mean, again, in the movie of my mind, that was just a, a really well, a well-paced, uh, well-delivered scene. Oh, thanks. And and then the um, the aftermath, uh, without giving away too much, uh, was also something that really, you know, I had a decision to make because uh, I I do often, as I said in the afterward, think about uh, what happens after. <laughs> yeah. And is what happens after what's supposedly the end something that you should include? And um, because of the kind of weight of history in the in the book i felt like we did need to see the aftermath but the aftermath is also trapped in what happens in the rest of the the, the first part of the book mm -hmm. uh so it never really actually escapes from the first part of the book which i thought was also interesting um and kind of physically manifests again without again i feel like there's a lot of spoilers to be had with this book um and uh, it probably will be uh, the. I think there's two other novellas in the series I'll write, and it will eventually be a, a mass market trade paperback uh, collection, probably called the Bad Twin or something like that, referring to one of the countries. Right, and we should mention it is set in a kind of 
it's the real world, but it's not like you don't mention the countries, but I feel like we're seeing like war-torn Eastern Europe or, or, or something in that realm where there's just no time for order to reestablish itself in a way that's recognizable before the next wave of whoever's taken over. Um, and it just feels like, I mean, it creates an almost fabulistic sort of approach to saying you're in one country and you go to this other country. I mean, you mentioned little minute details like passports and, you know, there's things that come up that feel like very grounded details, but it also has a sort of, by removing those details, you make it kind of universal. I think I heard you somewhere say that you'd thought about what if you were to change the the venue of this story uh, to the American South, for instance, and how much you could have a similar story that would unfold differently. But I mean, I pictured, okay, what if they were going up the Mississippi River? It's not that hard to imagine a similar situation where you could say, wait, is this the world? Is this the real world or is this a dystopia? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it probably would change. Actually, when I wrote that in the afterward, I, uh, when I just reread it in the printed version, I was, well, actually it would probably change quite a bit, but um, it would be a different weight of history though. A different kind of history, but a similar idea that you can just allude to the, the problems that are in the in the earth in this place that are in the blood of everyone there. That like it goes back, and I don't know. I found that really interesting. Uh, how much I was t- trying to decide: am I supposed to be picturing our world right or in this, or or a slightly like you said, a few seconds in the future, or or what have you? So I'm glad to know that you're going to be returning to that. It did feel like there were little things lurking around the edges that could be explored mm-hmm. further. But it's a complete story on its own. You mentioned about the trade paperback thing. I mean, this was just printed in a limited edition. What is this like for you when you finish some work that you're happy with? I mean, I, I noticed you seem to do this uh, periodically. You'll put out a book in that format and it eventually is made more widely available. Yeah, it's a, a limited from Subterranean Press. And, and you know, quite frankly, uh, you know, this was something that I wrote uh, and, and, and although I've changed some things since and kind of like fine-tuned it was available several years ago but the problem was the weird length um and then the scheduling because i was being so prolific writing born in these other books um you know i've been extremely blessed in having the book sell very well despite often being very strange but you cannot test that too much you cannot have so many things out uh that you begin to step on your own own toes. Uh, so it just became a scheduling issue. And then at some point I was like, I really want this to be out because I think it's one of my better pieces. And it's at least the satisfaction of getting it out to like a thousand readers. I think it is or 800 or something like that. Uh, many of whom have actually emailed and been very appreciative, but I, I yeah. do look forward to the time when it's actually more widely available, but it literally is just a scheduling issue. Uh, I mean, for example, the angels novel, I basically, although I had started parts of it a while back, uh, I basically finished except the things I'm fine tuning this year unexpectedly when I got a dis- disinfected tick bite and was out of my mind uh and sick and I just started finishing it and writing it so suddenly I have another novel in addition to this ravine novel series I've got three of that I just happened to kind of write rough drafts up on and off the last couple of years so there's literally three novels plus now the second YA novel queued up at some point uh, that are almost done, you know, so it's, it's, um, it becomes, it, it, you can kind of see what the issue is. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's, it'd be one thing if I was writing in a series, you know what I'm saying? Like the same recurring detective or something, I think in terms of the scheduling, uh, at least that's what I, I see in the detective series that I, I read, uh, that you can come out more frequently, but, but I have to be very careful not to, <laughs> not to over, uh, I don't know, whatever, you know, over 
something the the weird market for the stuff oversaturate the market would be the really yes, gross way I'm to saying. refer to it yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, you would think that your readers would be more interested in just whatever the latest missive is i do think there's something to be said i mean i know with bands that try to put out three albums in a year or something it can sometimes be a thing where you think you just need a little bit of a cycle to to you know wait and be excited again but um i think that all of them being so different would probably would probably help a little bit i was wondering one other thing about bliss do you have melodies in your mind for the songs that the people are singing in that that's a good question i think i might have when i first wrote them but then a lot of them are also cheekily adapted from public domain sea shanties and things like that Mm -hmm. some of them uh so (laughs) i don't know if that really fits the the moment um i started that with the ya (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where there's a, a weird, uh, intelligent golden sphere everyone's trying to uh, capture for its powers who likes to sing sea shanties. So <laughs> I just adapted that. You're alluding to this young adult world. We didn't really get into a peculiar peril or the whole world of Jonathan Lamb's head, but that feels like, to me, it feels more like you just at play. Not to say that it's easy, therefore, but it feels like the humor, the crazy characters, the weird reality-bending aspect of it, it's still grounded. There's still threats. There's still something to care about. But it is very much like, okay, this is like you're letting your cleverness and your your pleasure at writing this stuff feels very evident. I still don't quite understand how I get away with the things that I get away with in these stories, but <laughs> readers are very patient. So would a Glass Drifters album be like all sea shanties or do they dip into other styles? There are definite progressions to these cockroach songs that are included. Um, And so the end ones are actually quite sad in a way, given what's happened in the story. And they're deliberately, the the actual things happening in them are are sadder and sadder. So so they also are supposed to serve the main story. Um, And I like, I like, I like dealing with those kinds of layers and levels. Um, Uh, I think it adds adds something, and it doesn't necessarily have to be something the reader notices or not on a conscious level. So is it true that cockroaches are one of the few things that kind of creep you out? They are. Um, and so I was actually on a Russian hydrofoil from the 60s that was kind of badly made going down the Danube at an ungodly speed uh, in, in a, a, a a central room with benches in this boat that had no windows and it had a bunch of deodorant trees hanging from the ceiling that weren't helping. Uh, when we were suddenly told, uh, cause I heard rustling in the boxes underneath our feet, um, were quote unquote professional cockroaches, which turned out to mean bait for fishermen, uh, which didn't help at all because I have this phobia about cockroaches. And so I suddenly realized that under every single bench, including ours, were literally thousands and thousands of live cockroaches in boxes. Uh, and then, as Anne said later, my wife, she said, I did not tell you uh, until we were well off the boat that there was an amateur cockroach crawling across the ceiling as well. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of amateur versus professional. <laughs> Freelance. <laughs> <laughs> and and just as in Bliss, we did, uh, and I was with my editor who also found this experience strange because I'd never booked this particular trip down the Danube before. Uh, <laughs> so it was new to all of us. Uh, we did actually have to play Twister on smaller and smaller boats with our luggage to get down to this hotel on the Danube.
The thing that's not in the book, because, you know, obviously the book becomes horrific and unreal, is that when we got to the hotel in the middle of nowhere on the Danube, which they booked because they knew I liked to bird watch and they thought this would be nice. And it was, but, mm-hmm. but they had also booked uh, these outboard canoes to go birding right away. So we had been in, up since four in the morning, driving down to the river and then taking all these boats. And then we spent two hours on the Danube, <laughs> dead tired birding until I finally admitted to them that I just wanted to sleep. And they finally admitted that they hate birding. And so we, we kind of bonded <laughs> over, over the fact that they had been so exceedingly polite that they, you know, had had tried to offer this experience uh, that turned out to be awful for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I wanted to, you know, there's one little cockroach thing. I did when you when I read that about you. Didn't you say that they when you were a kid they would they would get in your ear? Or? Yeah, there were a few instances where these very small cockroaches would uh, burrow into your ears. Uh, and uh, I had both uh, allergies to some of the blooming trees. So sometimes my eyes would be very, I, I'd have this, I'd be very difficult to even open my eyes when I woke up in the morning, uh, but also uh, asthma. So I had trouble breathing. So I'd be wheezing so hard, I wouldn't be able to tell that there were cockroaches uh, crunching, making this crunching sound in my ears. Uh, and, and I do remember there was one time where I couldn't just get it out of my ear that my dad had to take these tweezers and Ugh. pry this cockroach out of my ear. <laughs> and so you know i i um i had had a prior experience where i kept having this recurring dream of somebody stabbing me in the middle of my palm uh, and so i put that in a story in city of saints as a dream there and that got it out of my head so when it came there was an opportunity to put cockroaches in a story as in bliss i thought well i'll, I'll put cockroaches in here and see if it gets it out of my head and it actually worked to some extent i still have a slight phobia but nothing near what i had before i wrote bliss and put all the cockroaches in there uh, so some weird transference or like putting it in a separate place uh, has actually worked uh, which and my wife finds uh, quite a relief because she doesn't like having to be the the cockroach person who, who 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 takes care of the cockroach that you know inevitably because we're in Florida <laughs> winds up in the house. I'll just share a, a war story myself. Uh, the, uh, when I was a kid um, in the South, um, you know, you'd see cockroaches, flying cockroaches, crawling cockroaches. Uh, I guess they were all amateurs. Um, but I one time had set down, you know, IBC root beer that comes in like the dark bottle. Yeah, I had set that down at a friend's house one time and came back to drink some. And as I took a big swig of it, I noticed like something going. I felt like a fluttering in my mouth and I opened my mouth and a, a flying cockroach like left my mouth, but it left my mouth in such a spectacular fashion. It kind of like launched off from my tongue mm-hmm. and then like right in front of me where I could see its full glory, it like, it, oh like my God. its wings went out and it went, yeah. you know, and it kind of went on its way. But I just, it was such a weird experience. Yeah. I didn't even think so much about the contaminant aspect of it, mm-hmm. which I guess would be the weird thing. Yeah. But it was just the idea of there's something alive in my mouth and having to realize that. <laughs> And then how quickly it was able to escape. That's pretty gross. <laughs> it was a life-changing event. <laughs> sure. So 
frankly, people should be able to find your books everywhere. Uh, but where should people find you online, Jeff? Well, despite the fact that it seems to be falling into tatters, I'm still most active on Twitter for right now. Uh, although also I am on Facebook and you can find me easily there for updates on things. Uh, and then every once in a while on my website, which is just jeffvandermeer.com. But the next thing that's coming out is uh, Venice Underground, which is a reprint of my first novel, uh, which also has a, uh, a preoccupation with animal rights, with biotech and things like that. Uh, you can see all of that stuff in there, but it also includes uh, in the hardcover version, all of the related uh, Venice Underground stories. And, you know, I started writing these uh, when I was 14 or 13, uh, started publishing them in magazines overseas, uh, mostly. And uh, and now they're all collected in, in one place. Everything, <laughs> well, everything I wrote from 14 until like uh, 26 or 27, including the novel. And, uh, you know, it's it's. Um, it's also got a, uh, I'm really thrilled that Charles Yu, whose work I love so much, uh, wrote an introduction to it. Uh, I've got a new afterword to it. The design of the book is beautiful. It's out from MCD FSG. Uh, and uh, if you just type in Venice Underground, I'm sure you'll be able to find it online, but it's also on my Twitter. And that's out in March. Uh, and I will be doing some events around that and, and talking about it more then. Cool. I will definitely be reading that. I've only read the uh, short version of the Venice Underground novel. As for me, look for me on Twitter and Instagram at Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. You can also find my music on Bandcamp, sci-fi.bandcamp.com. That's S-I-G-H-F-I-G-H. Jeff, it, it is a genuine thrill to get a chance to pick someone's brain after reading and enjoying so much of their work. Uh, it, it means a lot that you took the time out to do this. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Take care. Have a good afternoon. You too. Do I have to talk you